You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Good morning. It's, uh, it's really good to be back. It's actually good to be standing up. You know, sometimes when you go through those seasons where you don't feel well, and I think some of you have done that. Thank you for the prayers, by the way. Some of you have asked, well, where did I go? Well, it, it started out as a, a retreat and a study retreat and rest and kind of got mixed in there with a little sickness. And so that's what happened, but we're doing good now, and we're praying for you. Uh, we're praying for you as well, especially if you're, you know, sick and not feeling well. We just want to let you know that, that God heals us and he touches us. And so that's the way we've been praying, and we're so thankful. And again, I want to just remind I want to remind you, water baptism. Water baptism is a big deal. And so if you haven't done that, um, please sign up. I'm looking forward to this. I have the opportunity. It's going to be fun for me because I'm baptizing some good friends of mine, and that's going to be uh, a blast. And you're going to enjoy it. I think you're really going to enjoy that time together. Well, good morning again. I'll say that. In a few minutes, we're going to continue to worship and share communion together. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to dive into John chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 45 through 57 together. I know that sounds uh, like a little bit of a rerun for some of you because we've already gone by it in our study. But we're going to go back to it again. And we're going to look at John 11 after the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to pay attention to, to how people responded to that, that amazing miracle of resurrection. So let's do this. Let's pray and ask God to just touch our hearts today. Father, we invite, we do, we invite your Holy Spirit to be with us. We ask that you would make your word real. And Lord, that your word would penetrate not only our hearts and our minds, but it would penetrate our feet, our body, our actions, everything that we do, we would glorify you. And so, Lord, today we know that you're going to do a good work in our lives, and we are so grateful for your work in Jesus' name we pray, and we say, amen. Well, I'm going to go back with you in time just a little bit. For some of you, it's way back. It's ancient history, but I'm going to do it. It was the summer of 1972. In 1972 was one of my greatest and formative years of my life. I had just finished my sophomore year in high school, and what happened was I was invited to go on an outreach to Europe with the Jesus people. And so we all jumped on a plane, headed to Europe, and uh, that the team consisted of people like the second chapter of Acts, Love Song, Barry Maguire. There were just a lot of different notable people that were part of that wonderful movement in the early 70s. And, and I was invited in to, to, to go with them. And it was an incredible blessing for me. My team was assigned to Northern Europe, Scandinavia in particular. We hung out in Stockholm, mainly. And we just did this wonderful outreach to the communities there and, uh, and around Sweden. And I was, I was blessed. I tell you, it, just, it was a life-changing event, as you can imagine. And, and it was a season in my life. I knew something, and it was firmed up in my heart. It was confirmed in my heart uh, what I was going to be doing the rest of my life. And that is what I'm doing now, and that was pastoring. Sometimes when we go out like that and we reach out into community or reach out in the world... We find out uh, about ourselves, and we find out about how powerful the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never gone on an outreach, you think about that and, and watch what God does in your life. He really does some amazing things. But something happened. Something happened when I returned. I returned in, again, the summer of 72. 
when I returned from that outreach, other things competed with my devotion to Jesus Christ, uh, particularly professional baseball, the prospect of playing uh, in the pros. And, and, and so what happened is unfortunate because I removed Jesus from the throne and I put something else there. The thing that I realize, and you know now, that Jesus does not compete with any one or anything. He doesn't share his claim on us. He has his claim on us. And when he does, and when he makes that very clear in our lives, then what we understand is he is absolutely and always for us. But in that year, that year to come, I, um, I asked God something because the conviction was so heavy in my heart. It was so heavy that I wasn't walking with Jesus the way I knew I needed to walk with Jesus. Maybe some of you have experienced this before. It was such a heavy conviction I could hardly breathe. I didn't like that. I didn't really like it at all. So what I did was something that I look back now and was very foolish. I said, Lord, I need you to do this. I, I need you to leave me alone for one year. Just, uh, just leave me alone. I don't advise that prayer, so if anyone's thinking about that, don't do that. But that's what I prayed. I said, Lord, you have to, you have to leave me alone uh, for one year and let me do what I, I want to do. Well, what happened was a year later, unbeknownst to me, thinking that Jesus had forgotten my commitment in prayer and asked to, for him to let me, let me alone, just leave me alone. I ended up in, in the hospital one late night. Uh, my baseball career was over. My body had been broken. Uh, the surgeons came in. They said, we're going to have to operate. They said, you're done. You are absolutely done. And in that alone time that happened immediately after that, I just heard the words of the Lord as if he was standing in the room, your year is up. And I thought about it. It was actually a year ago to the day that I spoke those words, Lord, leave me alone. You see, God kept his word to me. I didn't keep my word to him, but he kept his word to me. And I know this about God. He's going to pursue us. He's going to come after us. He's going to, to keep his conviction, they call that, the hound dog of heaven, is going to always be coming after us. And honestly, again, I forgot the prayer, but he didn't. Now, <clears throat> what am I going to do with Jesus? That's the question. And I did something absolutely foolish. I continued to run. Or, or I should say, I continued to limp. I continued to limp away from God, still pursuing what I wanted to do, pursuing my goals, my selfish personal goals. And the tragedy got worse. It became... It became much worse than it was before uh, because a few months after being in the hospital the first time, I was totally incapacitated by another much more serious injury than the last one. And so God was pursuing me. And I remember in that time in the hospital in so much pain, they were jigsawing some uh, bones back together. There was several surgeries. There were several days in the hospital. And I could feel that pursuit of God. I could feel him pursuing me. And I'm so thankful he, he does that. And he does that with all of us because he loves us. Now, he does it in different ways. Can I tell you what he does? He usually speaks your language. When he comes after you, it's a language you understand. For me, the language of pain. That was a language that, that, that I understood. And the Lord made sure that I understood it. You see, I had forgotten some very important words that I heard one of my best and favorite preachers preach. Dr. S.M. Lockridge said it this way. He said, he is inescapable. He's incomprehensible, invincible, irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't live without him. And you can't live out him. 
Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out that they couldn't stop him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. He always has been. He always will be. He had no predecessor. He has no successor. There's nobody before him. There's nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. For thine be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, that's his relentless pursuit of us. Today, the story that we read is about a relentless pursuit that Jesus has for all of us. Talks about the different ways that we approach Jesus, especially after some amazing miracle. How do we respond to that miracle? How do we respond in our own hearts? And so we're going to look at that today. And I think this, I, I think times really haven't changed from that moment to this moment and including in my own life. Times haven't changed that much since I've been young and how we continue in a lot of ways run from God. I know that happens. I know maybe in our own little heart we have these pursuits that are out there that we would want to achieve. We might not talk about them. We might not share them with others. But what might be happening is we're replacing God on the throne of our own heart. I want to say something this morning that's just really been on my heart for probably a month now. As we've prayed for families, as we've prayed for our kids, we're seeing God do some things in our community that, uh, that's remarkable. People coming to faith in Jesus, people wanting to pursue a life of discipleship, wanting to know Jesus more and more and more. And, and that, that absolutely excites me. But today, I just want to share just a brief word to our young adults. Uh, again, not much has changed. My heart was the way it was, running from God. There might be some people here today and young adults that might be listening to this for whatever reason you're listening to this. Uh, I want to just give you a plea. I want to invite you into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear this from my heart. As someone now that looks back on their life to see what they did and the decisions they made. And, and it's very simple. You can never outrun God. I know you've heard that before. But sooner or later, you will hit a wall. It's, it's, it's not an if. It's a when. God will come after you. He will pursue you. This isn't guesswork. This is a fact. Your time in a lot of ways, might be expiring now, and you can feel the grip of God on your heart and on your mind and on your, your circumstances, would you surrender? Would you just give your life over to Jesus and, and, and acknowledge that, that he is the, the Lord of your life? He sees you. God sees you, whether you're in this room or you're watching online. God really sees you. When it comes to his love for you, he is absolutely relentless. Maybe you've given up on you, but he hasn't given up on you. He'll never give up on you. The way that he goes about it is he's coming for you, and he's going to love you back into relationship with him. Now, I recognize that might be a word not only for young adults. It might be a word for several of us in the room, that we need to know the pursuit of God is real. The pursuit of God is, is so eternal. His commitment to us is everlasting. And I think for me to keep that in mind, especially as we grow older in Jesus Christ, sometimes we have this, you know, we lose, we lose the thought. We, we're, not, we're not there with him as far as the fervency or the passion. I want to be there. I want to be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ every single day. 
Now in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and that seems like really good news. I mean, if you, you heard that news and you knew that maybe even someone that you cared for and loved was raised from the dead, that would be good news. It would to me. But not everyone was happy. In John chapter 11, in fact, the choices some made put into motion the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and actually put a hit out on Lazarus. So in John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, I want you to pay attention to the aftermath, the ripple effect, as it were, of what uh, Lazarus, what happened to Lazarus and how people responded. You're going to see three different kinds of responses. I hope to get through most of them this morning, but you're going to see three different kinds of responses. And maybe what you're going to do is you're going to see yourself in one of these responses. But beginning at verse 45, this is what John tells us. He says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? Another way to put it is, what is happening? What do we do with Jesus? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, he spoke up. He said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And because of that, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to the region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, uh, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, this was the last Passover for Jesus, many went up from the country of Jerusalem to their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept doing this. They kept looking around. They kept looking for for Jesus, because he was there before disturbing the peace and doing what Jesus does. And so they were wondering, where is Jesus now? This is water cooler talk. This is going on among the citizens of Jerusalem and, and beyond. They're saying, where is he? I just want to know where he is because I want to I have a front row seat to, to this show. I, I want to see what's happening. And so it goes on here, and it says, they kept asking one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. See, the last thing that the people in Bethany were expecting was to see an alive Lazarus. That was the last thing that they had in their mind any time. Anytime a remarkable event takes place, like this one especially, it takes time for the human heart and mind to process that. And so there were people trying to figure this out. They were working through this incredible thing that they had never seen or witnessed before. I mean, you have a man who was dead come alive. It is a remarkable event. <clears throat> and in this case, the star witness, a resurrected corpse. That's the star witness. 
That's one reason the Jews put a hit out on him. They didn't want Lazarus telling the people what had happened and, and stirring up even more trouble. So this seems like an open and shut case. When you first look at it, you have the star witness, a once corpse, and he's walking the town. He's going to places. He's moving to and from. You would think that's open and shut. You would just think, well, case closed. That's what happened. But that didn't happen. There were other choices that people made about Jesus. Other choices that in some ways uh, seem as wild as it gets. Choices, I believe, that we still make today. What do we do with Jesus? I mean, what do we do? We have a real Jesus problem here because th th this isn't going to go away. Jesus isn't going to go away. Someone once said, we make our choices, and then our choices turn around and make us. Our choices make us. Earlier in this message, I spoke about the choices I made about Jesus and choices young adults make about Jesus, choices you may make about Jesus. But really, all of us must answer the question, what do I do with Jesus? What do I do? It's the age-old Jesus problem. So what are some of the common choices that people made here about Jesus? What were some of their decisions? How were they thinking and processing this? In this message, again, there are three responses toward Jesus. So I want to look at the first one. The first one is people are conflicted about Jesus. Imagine that. <laughs> people are conflicted about Jesus. Then they're conflicted about Jesus now. And you see that in verses 45 and 46. Listen to what it says. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary. Remember, the crowd was substantial now, not only because of Passover, but because Lazarus, according to Jewish custom, was already declared dead. Did you know in Jewish, Jewish custom, they would wait, they'd wait three days before they would actually declare someone dead? just in case the spirit hovered around them or over them. On the fourth day, dead. Dead as a doorknob. This was the fourth day. And Jesus showed up, and he brings Lazarus back to life. So the crowd has multiplied, not only because of Passover, but because these were dear friends that gathered around. So you have this. You have those that believed. And remember this. This is the theme of this gospel. The theme of the gospel of John, if you remember, two words, know and believe, know and believe, know and believe. John doesn't want you to escape this gospel without coming to a place of knowing Jesus and believing in him. That's his whole effort here. That's, that's, that's his focus. Not like some of the other gospel writers. They had different focus, great focus, great objectives. John is, I, I want you to believe. And remember, it was John, as we've said before, that ran to the tomb and outran Peter, got there. He looked in, and it says, and he believed. And he believed. So John's saying the same thing to you. He wants you to believe. I guess what surprises me is what you see in verse 46. Verse 46, it tells us that some reported this to the Pharisees. Now, you'd think, given the magnitude of this miracle, that all would believe. Again, I'm going to say that, that all would believe. It says, and I love, I love the King James Version of this, because it says on the fourth day, this is the word it uses, he stinketh. That's what it says. Look it up, it's true. It says he stinketh. His body already started to decay. You could smell it. You could smell the death 
around him in that place. It says that Jesus wept. I mean, there's a whole, a whole succession of events that happen here. Bottom line, he is gone until, until Jesus shows up. So, so you would think that everyone would believe in this resurrection, everyone that saw it. But there were some that did and some that didn't. I think that's true about us today. There are some that see certain things. You look at it and you say, yeah, I believe. There are others that look at certain things and they could be looking at the very same thing and say, well, that could have been a magic trick or that could have been this or that could have been that. So why didn't some of these people believe? Both witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus with their own eyes. Why didn't some believe? I can only probably, I think there's one area that I, that I would go to right away. Uh, and, and the reason I would go to this is because it would be true about me. And it's true about our history and relationship with God, even from the very beginning. Certainly true about the children of Israel in the wilderness is a hard heart. Some people had already hardened their heart to Jesus. They had already made a decision about Jesus not to believe, not to follow. And because that was their predisposition already, what are they going to do? They're not going to believe. They're not even going to believe a resurrection. Because a human heart, a hard heart, rejects the lordship of Christ. Bottom line is this. We don't want someone else t telling us what to do. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to be the Lord of our own lives. We, we want to call the shots. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to do what we want to do. But that relationship is very contentious if, if Jesus is sitting in the passenger seat because he's going to always ask you to drive. He's going to always ask for the keys to your life. He's going to always do that. And the great thing about Jesus is this. There's never any gray area of this. Do you know Jesus is very clear, always very clear. He, he provokes you to make a decision. Are you in or are you out? There's no philosophical negotiating <clears throat> with Jesus because he, he loves us. And so what is he going to do? He's going to continue to come after us. You see, a hard-hearted person would say that, well, a believer, and I've heard this said about me, a believer is predisposed to believing the miracles. Well, I would say that the hard-hearted person is predisposed not to believe the miracles. So the argument works both ways, doesn't it? You see, the children of Israel had this history. This was in their blood. This was in their legacy. If you think about the years that they spent in the wilderness, what had happened, my goodness, they saw things that we will never see. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw manna. Manna means what is it? What is that food falling from heaven? They saw a cloud lead them by day, a pillar of fire lead them by night. They saw water come from a rock unexplainable in the middle of a parched desert. They saw these things, and yet the commentary after all of this is their hearts were hardened. How could that be? That they see all these things, and their heart is hardened. You know, I saw miracle after miracle that summer of 1972. I saw a lot of miracles. I saw people's lives changed. Uh, I saw their dispositions changed. I, I saw healing. I saw a lot of different things, but in a few short months, my heart had hardened. 
You know, it says that about Jesus. You remember the story, he's feeding the 5,000. Only a few chapters back of this chapter where he's feeding the 5,000. And this great miracle takes place. And there's this just one sentence, this commentary that says, many went back and walked with him no more. They went back and walked with him no more. Why? Their heart was hardened. Miracles don't cause belief if the heart is hardened and already self-willed. I mean, it's a fun thing to see and watch. But if you're already hard in your heart, you've already made certain decisions. You know the only thing that pierces that is the power of God's Holy Spirit coming in because you have no ability to save yourself. You have no ability to be saved except for the work of God's Holy Spirit. Some didn't only not believe, but they snitched on Jesus. Man, they went... They saw what happened with Lazarus, and it says here they, they, they snitched on him. And, and I'm thinking, why would you do that? I mean, why would you see what you saw? I mean, it's one thing just to maybe not believe, go home, be quiet, uh, go eat your, you know, falafel or whatever, and, and just cruise, just take it easy. They don't do that. They're proactive in going after Jesus. So they go and they report Jesus to the Pharisees and to the high priest. What is the problem? What's happening? Well, I think you have to look at what was motivating them. I think what they wanted, probably more than anything else, given their disposition, was they wanted religious approval. You, you see, they, they wanted to be so much approved by religious authorities and people in their life. They wanted so much to have that approval in their life. It, it didn't fit their theology. That was a, probably another thing that really bothered them. And there are things that are going to go on. Believe me, think, there are things that will go on in our life that, that there are going to be times it's just not going to fit our theology. It's going to blow us up. It's going to be unexplainable. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be theologically sound. But I know there's things that have happened to me, and I thought, I don't know. I don't know how to explain this. I don't know how to explain it except that Jesus intervened. And these people, I think, they were committed more to their religious practices than they were to their relationships they were more committed to those religious practices religion dogma all of that meant the world to them so they were holding tight to that holding tight and they were exchanging it for their own soul that's what they were doing they were holding tight all the while they're walking further and further away from the god that they say is yeshua the Je jehovah they're they're walking away they don't see him so what happens here is people are conflicted. But here's another response that people have in this passage of Scripture. People had conversations about Jesus. I know that seems like a small difference than the, the response before, but I think it's so true. If you look at verses 47 through 52, you're going to see two conversations going on that I find really interesting. I find so interesting because the first conversation is happening between the religious elite. They are really messed up. Man, they are messed up by what they saw Jesus do. They're messed up by the history Jesus has with them. And so the first is a leadership meeting in verse 47 to 50. It's the elite leaders of the Jewish faith. They convene an emergency meeting to discuss the Jesus problem. They're saying, man, we need to get together. We need to talk about this. There's something happening here that we, we, we aren't controlling anymore. 
because that's absolutely the bottom line of what they wanted to do. They wanted to control the people around them with their religious practices. That, that, that's the only way you can explain that this, this faith starts with Ten Commandments and ends up with 100,000 rules to obey those Ten Commandments. It's a control issue, and they want to control. They don't want to lose their wealth. They don't want to lose their status. They don't want to lose their place of influence. So the leaders get together. They talk this Jesus problem over. And then there's a second conversation I think is more real. At least it is to me. It's on the streets of Jerusalem. I mentioned it earlier in verses 55 to 57. And once again, it's about Jesus. What do we do with Jesus? How are we going to handle this? What's going to happen here? Now, these conversations uh, have certain motives that are underlying, they get revealed. And I want to tell you what I think reveals, or what, what is revealed here. I think some people are very fearful. They're very fearful about what happens when they let go of what they're holding on to and exchange it for what Jesus wants to give them because Jesus has made it very clear. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So you got to let go of what you're holding on to because because Jesus doesn't come into full hands. He comes to empty hands. He comes to a heart that's calling out. He comes to a heart that's hungry. That's where he's going to go. That's where he's going to gravitate. That's where he's going to go every single time. But these people are so fearful. So who are these people in the first conversation? Well, they're the Sadducees. If you know anything about the Sadducees, well, the best way I can say it for today is um, they are ultra-liberal. They're the progressives of their day. That's who they are. That's who these people, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the Old Testament except for the first five books, the Pentateuch. They, they believe in, in the Pentateuch. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the spiritual world. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in any of this. These are the attorneys. These are the lawyers. These are the folks that make the laws. It's uh, the gathering of the, the, the Sadducees. They come together. But amazingly, they come together with another group, and it's the Pharisees. Who are they? Just imagine this, folks, today. If this ever happened, it truly is a miracle, maybe even a greater miracle than Lazarus being raised from the dead. But you've got the ultra-progressives coming together with the right-wing ultra-conservatives. Imagine that in the same room. You can, really easy, can't you? I mean, I can. This is the group that's coming together. They're coming together because they both have a Jesus problem. They're thinking, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? See, the Pharisees were strictly religious, believed in the whole Old Testament, and actually the oral traditions, the Talmud, the stories of the Old Testament. They, they, they believed in that. And they all come together. And then you have to ask yourself, why are these guys in the same room together? I mean, what are they so fearful about? How did they all get together? Well, what in the world? They, you would never see them in public walking next to each other. In fact, if they saw each other coming, they'd go different directions. But these two groups are in the same room. And they're saying in this board meeting, what are we going to do? Jesus is performing signs and wonders. I love this. They don't deny it. <laughs> they say, wow, he's performing signs and, and wonders. We, we know. We know. There's no denying. They didn't deny it because they say, oh, there's Lazarus. He's eating like a falafel across the street. He's right there in the cafe. He's alive. That's, 
evident, it's true, it's real. So here, he, here they are. They're holding this big bag and they don't know what to do with it. And they have this conversation about Jesus and their politics and their, their religion. That, that's what's happening. And they're trying to sort it out. What are they motivated by fear? They're motivated, motivated by the, the things they'll lose. I think I have to stop there for me and ask those same questions. What, what gets in the way? What stands in the way of me opening my hands, metaphorically opening my hands and saying, here, Lord, here is the influence. Here is the status. Here is the role. Here is the positions. Here's, here it is. Uh, would, you, would you fill it with you? Would you put the things of your kingdom in my heart? Would you make the gospel alive in my life? Lord, I, I need to walk with you. I need you. So you have Pharisees and Sadducees together. Well, that's an odd group. They hated each other. Listen to this. They came together because both had a hatred toward Jesus that exceeded the hatred they had for each other. What was driving this? It was hate. What was driving this was not love. What was driving this is hate. Another moment to pause. What drives you? Is it vengeance? Is it hate? Is it to be right? What drives you? I look at this story and I have to confess it's convicting. Because um, I'll be darned if I lose. I, I, I will. Uh, I might even die before that happens. What they did is they came together and they hated Jesus. I can't imagine the visceral hate, the feeling in the air, the emotion, the body language. We are, we are not, let me say this, we are not driven by hate. We're driven by love. Love is what drives us. I want to be more for Jesus than I want to be against something else. Certainly, there are things I look around. I'm not for sin. Don't, don't, I'm not for, you know, anything that's not the Bible. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. I want to be so much more for Jesus that any time a door opens for someone else to come to faith, it isn't because I'm against something, but it's because I'm for something. I'm for Jesus. I'm for their salvation. I'm for the doors opened here. I'm for people coming and finding faith in Jesus. I'm for you and what God wants to do in your life and how he wants to use you to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. My goodness, this last week, I heard four or five different stories. I, I think that was for me just a miracle because it doesn't always happen, but four or five stories with your names in the stories about how you care for people who are broken and how you invite people who are sick in their spirit. You, you do that. Wow, these two groups of people dropped all their other differences, which were many, and they came together around their hatred for Jesus. They hated him so much. Their goal, we can't let Jesus get in the way of our interests. We can't let Jesus ruin our cause, our politics, our statutes, this was all at stake. And then the gospel didn't matter. The good news was no longer in the conversation. It was all about the things that they invented. 
This, this is not much different, I've said that, than today. Some people use Jesus to further their own cause. Uh, they want to capitalize on that when Jesus is used as a pawn to get something they want. I love what A.W. Tozer said. Whoever seeks God as a means to a desired or their desired end will not find God. God will not be used. And I say amen to that. Amen. And then there are some people who were more calculated here. And it was Caiaphas, the high priest. He was a Sadducee, by the way. What Caiaphas said was sinister. He meant it in an evil way. He was saying, look, either Jesus has to die or this nation has to die. It's one or the other. Wink, wink. We know which way it's going. Jesus must die. But God does something. He turned and he used Caiaphas' death statement into a prophetic word because that's exactly what happened. Jesus went not because they captured him, but because he laid his life down as a sacrifice at every point. He surrendered to the will of his father and he follows this pathway right to death, even the death of the cross. That's where he's going. And out of his mouth of evil comes this statement that is prophetic. Can you see this? God even uses some of these evil words to capitalize on a prophetic word that's stated by all the major and minor prophets that say, hey, he's going to come. The Messiah is coming. This guy unwittingly, Caiaphas, spoke about Jesus dying on the cross for all mankind. And so here's the, the big point, and I'm going to finish with this, and I want to get across to, to you. I think I think we'll actually end with this and, and move to communion. We'll continue a little bit of it next week. But all around us, our conversations going on every single day. All around us are conversations that are going on all the time in cafes, in restaurants, in meetings, in the gym. They're discussions about everything. There are discussions and conversations going on. Politics, economics, technology current events, and spirituality. Friends, I'm really praying that you would have your ears open to those conversations. And that in those conversations, you don't inject your opinions. You tell people about Jesus. <laughs> just, just let people know that there's a way and it's Jesus. I tell you, I want my ears to hear these conversations. And I'm going to make a statement here. I prayed this last week, Lord, would you let our hearts be as hungry for you as the world is hungry for you? Would you let us be hungry? Would you let us engage. This is what I found out in these conversations I've had recently. My opinions are worth nothing, but my Jesus is worth everything. Everything in these conversations. I was with some new friends on Friday. Like these friends, I really do. Honest, not afraid to talk about spiritual things. Not churchgoers. I don't, I don't think even believers. But they wanted to engage me in a conversation because someone blurted out, isn't he the pastor of the church down there? I mean, that was good, but I said, yes, I am. <laughs> What's on your mind? Talk to me. 
Well, we heard about your journey. We heard about your brokenness. I was there this Sunday. You talked about it. Blew me away. In street language, she said, that took some cojones. Sorry about that. But. And I said, it's Jesus, man. I don't know what else to tell you. And before you knew it, there was kind of a little crowd around listening. You know what I realized? They didn't give a fly and flip about my accomplishments. What they cared about was how Jesus treated me when I was broken. You have a story to tell. If you start it with the reality of we're broken, you're going to have a lot of ears leaning in, a lot of people paying attention. You and I don't have it all together. I know you know that. We, we don't. But I'm sure following Jesus with all my heart. But I want folks to know that they can too. Wherever they are, whatever they're facing, what they're looking for is they're looking for the truth about Jesus. Are we hungry for Jesus? Are we hungry for him? That's the question that continues to go over and over in my mind. You know, another prayer, and I'm going to lead us into communion, is uh, it's a prayer that isn't so much about leading something. It's a prayer that has a lot to do with helping me stay out of the way. It's one of those prayers. It has nothing to do with position, being a pastor, any of that. It has everything to do with, Lord, don't let me mess this up because people are hungry. I don't want to get in the way. Would you let them come and whoever comes, let them come and let them experience what it is to follow Jesus. You see, that's what this story is about. That's what, what, what John wants us to hear and sometimes I wonder, have we wandered from what really matters to the Father? I do, in my own heart. Have we strayed? Do we need a course adjustment or a recalibrate our spiritual compass? <laughs> you know, that's what communion is all about, by the way. It's, and put it in this language, it's about recalibrating your spiritual compass because it says whenever you come together, remember me because you have a tendency to forget. So go due north here. Go, go true north. It's to Jesus. That's, that's what this is about. When we come to the table together, it's about recalibrating. And so where do you need to recalibrate? Where is it that you might have walked off the path just a little bit? We have sometimes, I know we have walked down paths that ultimately get us nowhere in light of eternity. I'm going to invite the worship team to come out, but it's, uh, we're going to continue. It's in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells a story about a prodigal son. And this story, I want you to hear this. This story is about, it's about family. So you have to hear this. This is, about, this is about family. It's about a son that wanders. It's about a father who loves. This isn't outside, uh, outside there. This is about inside. This is a story, an inside story. Because it's about a boy who had everything. But he, his compass went wacko. He, he, went, he went in wrong directions. It's in Luke chapter 15. And I think a lot of us love this story. This is a son that knew what it was like to be close to a father. You have to keep that in mind. He already knew what it was like to be close to a father. And he, he took off. It says Jesus continued... There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, 
give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. <laughs> the first step to knowing you need Jesus. So he went and he hired himself out to the citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. And then it says this, I love this phrase, I will set out and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there because it occurred to me, if you notice something was very important to me about this story, in verse 20, so he got up and he went to his father. I love this. You know why I love this? Repentance began with his feet. You see, you can have all this going on in here and all this going on in here, and, and that's good. But if your feet don't get engaged with going back to the Father somehow, it's the cycle of repentance. It starts here knowing I have a need, but then it has to work itself out here. You can't just be sitting in a place in your living room, in church, whatever, and say, well, I repent. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. But where your feet need to go, where do you need to go next with your feet? I think we stop it right there with our this and this, and it doesn't get down to this. Your feet are vital when it comes to faith, when it comes to feet. It says he set out to go back to his father. His feet moved before his words were spoken. Some people ask, well, why do you guys do communion this way? Because your feet are important. Your feet are important. So we get up, we use our feet, we come to the tables that are in the room and we take the elements that represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to do that again today. And then we take those and if there's something that you need to recalibrate in your heart and your spirit, when you come forward, would you make the declaration that say, my feet are going there for repentance. My feet are going here for confession. Whatever that is, I don't know what it is for you. But that's what you're doing, you're using your feet. So communion has this deeper understanding of going to the Father and saying to the Father, I want to get everything else out of the way. I want to get everything up front. I've repented. I've sinned against you and heaven. Lord, forgive me because your feet are going to take you to that place. Remember that the bread represents the broken body. The, the drink represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Today, God's working in your heart. He's working in my heart. He's working in the hearts of people outside these doors. Let's have ears to hear, eyes to see. Let your whole body, soul, and spirit engage in the work of God's kingdom. It's all of us. It's everything. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we understand there's something so spiritually substantial that takes place when our feet are involved. We don't forget. 
we don't forget is easy. But Lord, I pray that as our feet make way to these tables to share the elements with each other in community, that there's a recalibrating that might happen here, a miracle of hearts and mind and body. Lord, I pray that with all of my heart today for me, for all of us, for the body of Christ. Lord, let us let us repent and walk with you and have a story to tell those that are listening. Create in us a clean heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say together, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.